Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Supplied, episode 336. This program is dedicated in honor of the newlyweds Esther and Menachem and the Leiter, who were married on the fifth night of Hanukkah, dedicated by the Jacobson family. 34 years ago, in the year 1987, on this day, Hey Tevis, the fifth of Tevis, there was a victory in a court which the Rebbe designated as a day in which the Dan Notzach, we were victorious, the Sforim were victorious, and it was established that the books, the holy books in the library, the Friedrich Rebbe's library, belonged to the Chsidim. And the Rebbe credited the Rebetzin Chaim Mushka with sharing the key lines that determined the verdict. When she was asked in her deposition, who do the books belong to? The, to the Rebbe or to the Chassidim? She answered, the Rebbe himself belongs to the Chassidim. And therefore, all his books and his library and all his possessions also belong to the Chassidim. Which really, if you think about it, is a very powerful statement. Every human being is a private citizen. Even great leaders are private citizens. They may have a public persona and a, uh, the role they play in the public eye. But to say that the entire Rebbe belongs to Chassidim is basically saying that he has no private property. He's not a private individual. And that indeed is the case. So at the time, it may not have been fully appreciated what the significance of Hey Tavis was, but today it is. Essentially, in a nutshell, it's one thing. It's designating that the books of the library are not privately owned, not by the Rebbe and not by his heirs, but they are part of the eternity of what a Rebbe is, what his books represent, and his relationship with Chassidim. So in that sense, today, after Gimel Tammuz, after the Rebbe's passing, 26 years ago, we have a document in a federal court, not just in a Torah statement in a Besden, but in a federal court, legal, legitimate established in the material, secular world that a Rebbe is an eternal entity because he's not about himself. And therefore his books are part of the Torah itself. And what is Torah? Torah was given to us, God's Torah. And it's not subject to mortality and therefore not subject to any of the elements. And they live on Torah Nitzchis. So what's the best way to honor Heitavis? is by learning in this Torah. When we learn in it and we follow its directives, we demonstrate as the Rebbe's words, the Tezva of Tammuz, the 15th of Tammuz, Tav Shemem Hei, when it was first revealed that someone had stolen the books. The Rebbe's words are that Chabad, Chassidus, Torah, becomes more Lebedic, more alive, and stronger, and more active by us, within us, 
among us and through us to every Jew and to every one in this world, the entire world. So the way we honor Hey Tevis is like no other special day. We honor it by demonstrating through our learning and through our actions that this is not a book of the pa- books of the past. This is not about old ancient history. It's about what we are living with right now and continue to live until Mashiach comes. We may not ever, never understand why Gimel Tammuz happened, the concealment, but it's clear that the very essence of what a Rebbe represents and his books represent, that lives on. But it's in our hands. When we do what we have to do by learning it, by engaging with it, by being passionate and implementing it in our lives, in our lives, and how we influence and inspire others, then it comes alive in the fullest sense of the word. That's what Hetavis is. Had Hetavis not, not happened, this would not have been established. You could argue that the books belong to the Rebbe as a private citizen, and maybe some of it goes to his heirs. You could argue all kinds of arguments. But now it's established. It's established that this is not any individual property, not even individual of the Rebbe, because the Rebbe himself is not a private citizen in that sense. So many fundamental principles in Yiddishkeit, and Chassidus particularly, are reflected in Hey Tevis. Now, was this known back in 1987? Not that I recall. We knew there was an important battle, an important victory, and it had many implications. But this became much more apparent as the years rolled on, especially after Gimel Tammuz. And the directive is very clear what we should be, we should be doing. So that's Chassidus applied to hate Tevis. Obviously, much more can be said, but let's talk about some other matters as well that are also related to this day and to this uh, week, which is, of course, the week of Vayigash, Pasha's Vayigash, when the Rebbe first spoke about Hey Tevis back in 34 years ago. Um, the Rebbe also connected it to the Pasha Vayigash. This is the Pasha, very dramatic chapter, when, yeah, when Yitz, Yosef reveals himself to his brothers. And in a very sentimental and very moving narrative, after them, they sold him to slavery. 22 years he was apart from them, from his father, from his beloved father Yaakov. He finally, Yosef could not control himself further when he saw Yehuda's dedication and ready to give his life as an Arav, as a guarantor instead of his brother, Binyamin. <coughs> Excuse me. And they unite, and Yosef says, does our father live at the Chi Yaakov of Vinu Yaakov's entire life? His, his special son, Yosef, discovers that he's alive. And the word is Vatchi, means he's alive. And the Rebbe connected it with this the living Svarim, bringing it alive. Because when you look at them as private property that can be sold in transactions, and transferred, that doesn't make them alive. That makes them a commodity, a private commodity. When it was demonstrated in the federal court that this belongs to the chassidim, because the Rebbe himself belongs to the chassidim, and it lives on, what better vatrichi Yaakov is there than that? The element of a reinvigoration, a renewal of what a Rebbe is all about, as I said, 
more alive, more alive than ever. As Yosef was apart from his father, his father thought that he was dead. You could imagine what he lived with, what kind of weight existed in his life. And then it was the last 17 years of his life, his best years, when he comes to Mitzrayim and lives with Yosef and the brothers in peace. So what you have here in Varshav Ayigash is a chapter, not only on a personal level of Yaakov and his family, but that lives on till this very day. It gives us renewed hope, that no matter what happens, without getting into the details, how is it possible that the brothers could sell their own brother into slavery, Yosef, regardless of all the explanations, but the end of the story is that there is a connection. And as Yosef says, you did not send me here, God sent me here. The lesson of that in life is that we are never victims of anybody. Wherever, we're, wherever we are, we were sent here to bring life, to bring sustenance, as Yosef did. So no matter what concealments, no matter what setbacks, challenges we have in our lives, Vayigash teaches us that see it through and there will be a reconciliation, there will be a reunion. That doesn't take away from the pain, but it gives you a context that ultimately Yosef brought to Yosef Hurud Mitzrayim and, and ultimately caused all Yaakov and his 17 souls to come to Mitzrayim. They would end up ultimately living very special years, but then would be the next great challenge, the Golos Mitzrayim, this great oppression and exile and slavery. But that too would end in Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and Gula that would then create a new nation, the Jewish people. So when you look at the big picture, you don't get caught up in the details. So as, poor, as, part, as painful as those details may be, there is a bigger story. And that's the lesson we learn here. You know, the words when Yehuda says to Yesav, nafshik shuri my brother, Binyamin, our brother's soul is connected, or Yaakov's soul is compound with, with the Binyamin's soul. You see the depth of love, the depth of connection. And that transcends everything. Once you have that type of love, Yosef can no longer control himself, and that's when he reveals himself to his brothers. And the next chapter begins, as I said, Vayigash. Vayigash comes also from the word meeting, confrontation. It could also be confrontation like battle, but also a positive confrontation. The Hagosha of Yosef and the Yehuda to Yosef, which as we read in the Haftarah of Vayigash, will ultimately be the reunion and the joining of Yehuda and Yosef, who split apart back in the days of Yaakov, but then again, the two kingdoms, based the Melech, Malchus Yehuda, and Malchus Yisrael, another painful period and split. But ultimately, when Mashiach comes, we will see the benefits of both and how they both complement each other. So, my friends, the story is the bigger story, the bigger narrative that we derive and we learn from these events. Another event this week is Asar Batavis. Five days after Hey Tevis will be Asar Tevis. This year it's Friday. And usually a fast day on a Friday is pushed either to Thursday or to the Sunday afterwards. Here Asar Tevis comes out on a Friday. The Avudraham writes that if Asar Tevis would come out on a Shabbos, it doesn't, it was specially designated and scheduled not to, but if it did, we learn from Be'etzim Yemazeh that says in Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur of course overrides Shabbos, that Asar B'tavis also says, Be'etzim ha'yemezeh. Therefore, Asar B'tavis would be doiche even Shabbos. That's why on Friday we fast. 
until Shabbos comes. What is the power of this Asada B'tevis? It seems to be far less, a lesser tragic day than the 17th of Tammuz and definitely less than the 9th of Av, which is a 24-hour fast. The 17th of Tammuz when they breached the wall around Jerusalem and the Tishabov when they destroyed the temple. Asada B'tevis was a Mozart. Nebuchadnezzar created a, uh, a Mozart. He encircled the wall. But he hadn't breached it yet. So you would think it would be lesser powerful than the others. Tishabov, if it comes out on a third, on Tishabov on Shabbos, we push off to Sunday. So the Rebbe explains, back in Tov Shalamachas, the Rebbe explained, one of the reasons for this is because you never look at a problem once it's already a problem. You look at the root of the problem, when it begins. All issues begin with in a very small way. When you don't, you don't nip it in the bud, and you don't act on it, that's when it can become a major problem. The Mozart, the, that Nebuchadnezzar, when he surrounded and besieged the wall, that was the beginning of the end. Even though they, had, they could have done tshuva and it would have been reversed, but since they didn't, that was the point. So you don't begin to fight when you wait till the building itself is being put, lit on fire or the wall has been breached. But as soon as the wall is besieged, you immediately, Somach Melech Bavel, you immediately do something to prevent the problem. And the same thing is on a medical level, infections. You don't wait till the infection festers and begins to turn into a monster, God forbid. You nip it in the bud. Same thing in relationships in every given area. Another interesting point is it says the loss of a Somach Melech Bavel. Somach means to lean on. Now, Samach has a negative interpretation. It means besieging. That Nebuchadnezzar and his army leaned, so to speak, on the walls of Jerusalem. And then ultimately, months later, would ultimately breach the walls. And then continue the destruction till the burning down of the temple. But Samach has another meaning. Samach means to lean as support. Why do we use the words of Samach? So the Rebbe says, because you can transform a besieging when you react properly it can end up becoming a support. Like anything Chassidus explains, the Hesapcha, we transform the negative into a positive. But that's up to us. So we have again lessons in the Sarbatevis, which similar to the lessons in, the, in Vayigash, that though it's dark, and though there could be a situation where something is besieged, that should awaken us, awaken us and inspire us to do something about it. So there you have some lessons from Hetevis, from Veigash, from Asura Betevis. And I will now cross-reference to other times I've spoken about this. I always like to be thorough and cross-reference. So this was discussed in previous programs, in previous years, in episodes 49, 94, 144, 145, 193, 239, and 289. And Asura Betevis, I spoke about in, in episodes 95, 145, 194, 240, and 290. One of the questions regarding Hey Tavis, I should have mentioned it before, but let me just read it, was the court case between the Rebbe and Barry Gerari concerning the books really about a deeper issue as to who was the true successor of the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rashago the Rebbe. So I, I already answered the question indirectly, but the answer is, no, it was not about who the Rebbe is. It was about what a Rebbe is. This wasn't a matter of a private succession where somebody inherits something. 
This is what a Rebbe is. That a Rebbe is, represents what God wants on this world, in this earth. The Rebbe's Sfarim, the Rebbe's library, Anitzchim, are eternal. And the Hate Tevis battle ultimately was that Barry Garari was insisting it's private property. He didn't claim to be a Rebbe, didn't claim to be an Erev. He claimed he's a private property. It's a very different issue. As private property, what happens then is that basically the Rebbe's, everything the Rebbe did in this world, the Friedrich Rebbe, and then the Rebbe, of course, whether it's the Svarim that he learned in, or the activities he did, if it becomes private, he can basically say, so listen, it's a private, uh, uh, private property, and it just passes on. And in that sense, if Gimel Thomas comes, or Yud comes, it ends with that, God forbid. Hey, Tevis demonstrated it's not the case. Because it's not about any individual. Not about the Friedrich Rebbe, not about the Rebbe. It's about something that's Nitzchi. Tehidah Nitzchi. It's the Svarim Nitzchi. What the Rebbe represents belongs to the Chassidim. And that does not die. Ain't Sibur Mes. Ain't Misa Bet Sibur. A Sibur, a community, is not an individual. It's not subject to the rules of mortality. Just like Tehidah Semes of Meshur Rabbeinu lives on, even after Meshur was not there, Gashmias, because why? Because Moshe represented what God wanted in this world. So Moshe and his Teda live on forever in that sense. It's not about the physical being, it's about what they stand for. So that's my response to that. Okay. Though we're already finished Hanukkah, but there was a question about Hanukkah that just, I did address. So I just want to point it out. And that is, which is the main miracle of Hanukkah, finding the oil or winning the war? So I discussed this actually in last episode, 335. And the writer writes, if I, I've heard it said that Antiochus and the Hellenist Greeks were worse than Haman and the Persians because Haman just wanted to kill us physically. The Hashmid, the Abed, it's called a Yehudim, all the Jews. Antiochus wanted to kill us spiritually. Not to, to, to kill the Jews. That their connection of Teda, why does that be Teda Secha, the godly, the spiritual part of it connected to God? And Mitzvah Schuket Itzenecha. And Tiochus wanted to kill us spiritually, which would also deny us a share in the world to come. What are your thoughts? So, this is a statement from the Lavush, who explains the difference between Purim and Hanukkah. Purim was Akzeda on the Guf, on the body of the Jewish people, Hanukkah was Akzeda on the Nisham of the Jewish people. So, this is actually sourced well. And that's taka why we celebrate the Netzachan out of the Mulchama, even though that was so key. But it was a Mulchama over Eir, over Ner Mitzvah Vetera Eir, which, rep- which was reflected in the fact that the, Levo- that the Shem and Zayazach, the pure olive oil, was, was uh, defiled and desecrated because olive oil represents light. The, the war was over light. That was what they wanted to fight. It wasn't about killing the Jews, it was about killing their spiritual light. So that's why we celebrated through light, as I discussed last week. Of course, this connects as well. Hey, Tavis always comes from Hanukkah, as does the Sarabit Tavis. So if you think about it, Hey, Tavis, hey, Tavis is the story of Hanukkah, except in the modern times. That no matter how dark it is, you find that crucible of oil that burns for eight days, that pure oil. That means it's Nitzchi, as the Ramban says. That even though the Beis Amidus was destroyed and the Menorah with it, 
and the Ner Tamid, the eternal flame, no longer burned, tragically. Chanukah, you would think, is weaker than that, because Chanukah came to rededicate that Meneda. And yet, these flames of Chanukah, they burn on forever. They're Nitzchim. Mam is the message of Hetevus. So we connect it with that. Okay, so a good segue is to the next question, which is a sad question, but nevertheless, we have to address it. Yeah, why does God test people with misfortune? When someone faces a misfortune, often it is said that God is testing them. Why does God have to test people this way? Isn't that enough of a test already to observe all 613 mitzvahs? So there's always two parts to a question like this. One is the emotional part, which is we don't know God's mysterious ways. That Tzemach Tzedek writes in Eda Teir Masei, the Rebbe cites it, that even though, yes, you read the Tzedek every descent brings an ascent, and every test brings out deeper faculties, that's what a test does. When you're put into hot water, it tests you. And you reveal deeper faculties, deeper strengths. But Hashem Lama Hashem Kacha. Why did he do it this way? He could have done it in a different way. We have to do it that way in such a painful way. So I don't have an answer for that, and there is no answer for that in the fullest sense of the word. However, we do know, as the Rebbe points out often, we don't ask why the misfortune happens. We ask what are we going to do about it? Healthy people, and throughout history, the Jewish people as a whole. That's what they did. Every misfortune, starting from Golis Mitzrayim, starting from Asar Tevas, starting from any other misfortune that struck them, at the end of the day, it was Kashayano Esam, Kenyir Yifritz. As they were oppressed and they were afflicted, direct proportion to that, they thrived and they flourished. Because that's exactly what a Nesoyan does. Nesoyan comes from the word Nes. It lifts you up. We would rather not have it. And we'd rather Hashem God do it a different way. <clears throat> but once we do, we come to dig deeper. And when we do, we find deeper olive oil. Like when you press an olive, that's how you discover the oil within it. So our hearts go out to anyone who experiences a misfortune. There have been plenty recently. They wish to protect us all from any further misfortunes and further pain, suffering, deaths, and so on. And we pray to God that with every misfortune, the people who suffered it find those deeper strengths and become greater people. So though the pain is deep, but it's at the end of the day temporary. And the growth that comes out of it is permanent. I know it's not a consolation. We'd rather not have it. And I repeat that again a third time. But at the end of the day, look at what happened to, our, to the people, the Jewish people. Our suffering caused us to become a great amnitzchi. Nothing can destroy us. And that's how we face these type of challenges and setbacks and misfortunes. So, the Rebbe would say very often, you know, how much is a limit? Do we still have to suffer? There's been enough, we've gone through enough, we've suffered enough. How much more does one need to do so? And we cry out with the same words. And yet, when it comes our way, we need to dig deeper. Because the other option is to lie down and die or to become cynical or to become fatalistic and hopeless is definitely not an option because then you perpetuate. Then you, what you're doing is actually creating more problems. 
giving up entirely. That has to be the attitude that we will fight on. We will not give in. We will always become stronger. We will always prevail, grow, inspire others. And I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. People who've suffered greatly. One loss, a second loss, more than a few losses. And you see how they shine with a glow that only can come from someone that's gone through such fire. And they change the world. So again, why it had to happen to them and why it has to happen altogether, I'm not going to even suggest an answer. These are God's mysterious ways. And as Hashem told Eve, you know, we are, you weren't here when I created heaven and earth. You don't know my bigger plan. We question when things don't work, but we don't question when things work, just as there would be no death if there was no birth. There'd be no joy, there would be no pain if there was no joy. So it's a big picture that we don't fully understand. The Rebbe, of all things, when he writes in that famous letter to Ben Svi, the president of Israel, why he doesn't want to use the word Nasi on him. He says, because as a little child, he always envisioned what a Nasi would be, would be Mashiach. And nothing less would do. The Rebbe says, in a time when Mashiach will come, when we will finally be able to say, Eitz HaShem be, Acknowledge God for the, pen, for the pain and the afflictions that we suffered in life. We'll be able to understand what was the deeper purpose behind it all. That's what the Rebbe chooses, because that's the biggest question of all. That's the million, trillion dollar question. Why good people suffer? Why there's misfortunes? Why we're afflicted? But at the same time, while we ask that question and we desperately want an answer, we don't allow ourselves to become victimized. Bad things happen to us. We have suffered, but we don't become sufferers. We allow it to propel us to greater heights and unprecedented heights. May that be the case, and we should no longer see any type of pain and misfortune or sadness or death or any type of loss, and only see the great permanent strengths that come out of it. So the next question, different topic altogether. This is dealing with mashpim, rabonim, mentors, leaders, authorities. So I have a series of questions that have come in, and let's uh, talk about that. Is it necessary to talk to your mashpia about things that you feel you could figure out on your own? And what if I'm, fe- I'm always coming out to my own conclusions, so then why speak to mashpia? And what then do you talk about when you feel you're coming to your own conclusions? Well, maybe we have to go back to what a mashpia is in the first place. Whether it's the word mashpia or selah harav, in Tov Shalamid Zayin Yutas Kisso, the Rebbe initiated mashpim, even though it's a concept he said clearly then comes from the previous generations, but he wanted to renew the concept of mashpim and spoke about it at length during that period of time in the year 19, uh, I said Tov Shalamid Zayin, end of 1976, going into 1977. Then again, Shabbos Pasha Dvorim, Tav Shem Vov, that would be the year 1986. The Rebbe used a different expression, Asel Charav. Is it the same thing or not? We've talked about it in previous episodes, not for now. So this topic of a mashpia, what is it? It comes down to a very basic principle. Each of us is a Negei Bedover. A Negei Bedover means you're subjective. When it comes to self, we are subjective, we're biased. We minimize certain things, we have our blind spots, we have our interests, we have reasons we exaggerate or we deny or we ignore. So a mashpia is a reality check. 
speaking to someone that has an objective perspective, someone we trust, but we can get a fresh set of eyes. You know, when you go to a lawyer or an accountant or a business advisor or a coach, that's essentially what you're looking for. Someone with ex- there could also be more experience with a mentor as well. But what they have mostly is not just experience, they also have objectivity. They won't be blind or biased and prejudiced by the way we ourselves are. So the mere fact that you're saying that you have things you feel you could figure out on your own, what's wrong with running it by a mashpia? It may only either confirms your conclusion or may help you adjust and, and you'll end up with a better result. It's always good to have an advice of someone that cares about you. Mashpia is not meant to be a, uh, a punishment, a type of uh, thing we should be fearing. It's actually a gift. It's the gift of being able to have someone that cares, that you trust, that has a fresh and objective perspective. And if they're trained and experienced in a certain area, even more so. So that's my response to this. You speak to Mashpia to just get another, another perspective. Sometimes it's going to be the same that you have, which is great. And then you can be more assured that what you're doing is the right thing. Especially when it comes to areas of relationships, emotional relationships, marriage, relationships with children, relationships with co-workers, with employees, with employers. There, it's even more so because our emotions blind us as well. Now, that's not necessarily a different level of subjectivity I'm discussing earlier. I'm just pointing out that in those instances, it's far more. Like, you know, if you're talking about how to... um, figure out a certain uh, way of using an appliance, you can follow a manual. You don't necessarily have to have a mentor for that, even though someone who's experienced may give you some shortcuts. But when it comes to the more emotional areas in life, that's, of course, where we get most blinded. And the Torah itself says there's nothing to be ashamed of that. It's the nature of human being. Ave mechasa al varim. Ave mechasa. Love, self-love, a person has avasatsme, self-love, conceals and covers over things. And a person sees all flaws except his own. And sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes we are too harsh on ourselves. And we need an, object, and we need an objective viewpoint to help us look at it more clearly and not be so difficult on ourselves with guilt or shame and so on. The recovery movement, the healing movement today, is really all straight out of the playbook of Torah, of having a sponsor, having a supervisor, having someone to speak to, a, a peer, a mentor, a trusted friend. Okay. And as the Rebbe would say in one of the most common answers that he would give, that most underused and not followed, Yedidim katsas yedidim evinim. Follow the advice of friends that are mevinim, experts. Every area of life, I assure you, would be better if you had someone to speak to about it. You'd make less mistakes, avoid different problems, preempt things. It's a very healthy thing to do. Okay, with that, let's move somewhat to the next question. What are the limits? Oh, I'm sorry. Is there ever a limit to following a psak din, even when it doesn't sit well with us? Okay, so now we're talking beyond mashpia. There's also psagdin, going to a rav and getting a halachic ruling, is more than just advice. So, but you could ask the same question with advice: Is there a limit? 
Like when, do, when is enanili mili? If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what will I be? Who am I? In other words, we need the other. So we talked about the second phrase. But how far do you depend on another? And when it comes to our Rav, the question is, is there a limit? And let's read it more in detail. Is there ever a limit to the statement we ought to follow up Sagdin even when it doesn't sit well with us? Or said differently, when we know for certain something is wrong on the facts, ruled against Ruvain, but Ruvain knows he didn't do it. And if so, what is the correct procedure? So in other words, it's a double question. One is, is there a limit when something doesn't seem to sit well with you? And secondly, what happens if you know that certain facts were either not, mis- not understood or not presented in this case, and Apsagdin was ruled based on facts that you feel were, ro- were not, were not, the, the Rav was not aware of? What should be the correct procedure? And I've seen different instances where Rabbonim have given Psakim, and I personally know from first-hand experience that they were not aware of certain facts and therefore their psak was based on a flawed premise. Even in the Torah, there are quite a few bad leaders or leadership decisions. Take, for example, the golden calf that got a lot of people killed and would have ended the Jewish people had Moshe Rabbeinu not interceded. There were leaders behind it. The story in Parshish Pinchas of Bnei Slavchad also comes to mind. They were standing up for tzedek where Mishpat failed them. The doors of Tzlach, where they were standing up for, for, for justice, failed them their inheritance and demanded it from Moshe Rabbeinu. So we see instances in the Torah itself where someone ruled something or someone said something and it wasn't correct. So clearly there are situations, the question is, what, where's the line? Where do you listen? When do you challenge? Etc. What are the limits of adherence to Rabbonim? When are, or this is another question, but a similar one. When or how to challenge them when there are actions, when and how to challenge them, the, the Psokim of Rabbonim, Rabbonim, where their actions are worthy of it. Deciding among asking one spouse versus a mashpia, versus Eitzah from a Rav, versus full-blown Shailatah Rav. So that's yet another question. Like how do you determine when you're facing a dilemma, how do you decide whether to ask your spouse, consult a mashpia, get advice from a Rav, or ask him for a full-blown halacha? full-blown Shaila, rather, that will provide a full-blown response. Okay, these are all excellent questions because they're very relevant to our interactions daily, on a daily basis. You want to do things right, and obviously we're assuming that people want to find the objective Torah answer to any given dilemma. So I have to say at the outset, there's no black and white formula. There are certain basic principles, but there are always instances where there may be an exception maybe an outlier or some different situation that needs to be addressed. So what are the principles? The principles are as follows. I mentioned before, we are all biased. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is if you think you're not biased when you are. Or you deny it and make decisions as if it's objective when you're really not objective. So how do you check that? You have someone to speak to. It can be a rav, a mentor. It could be a friend. As the Rebbe explains in Sheftin Nun Aleph, Tavshin Nun Aleph, the difference between Yehitzayich, Sheftayich and Yehitzayich, a mentor, a Rav, is more of an authority. A Yehitz is more of an advisor, more immersed in your situation. 
You could also ask a rov an Eitzah, advice. You can ask a rov a halacha, a shayla. So a lot of options here that are necessary to deal with the objective factor, the subjective objective factor. Now, that being said, we know that human beings are human beings. Shkiyas miyavin. Everyone can make a mistake. So even if that objective party may be more objective than you, that doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean that they're always correct. So that's why we have to use seichel. You talk to someone, and let's say they give you advice that doesn't rub you the right way. You would do it differently. You need to ask yourself, maybe it doesn't rub you the right way because it's precisely the right thing to do. You're just not comfortable. And because you're subjective, you don't want to hear the objective truth. That's possible. Or you may be right. Maybe there is something. So that's why the Torah has a few outlets. The Torah understands human nature, understands the possibility that there may be more factors to look at. So we have number one. There's a concept called Mehechen Dantuni. The Rebbe would cite it often. You have entitled, you're entitled to ask the Rav or whoever's giving you the advice, where, where are you deriving this from? What is it based on? And that Rav or Mashpia, if they know Teda and they should know Teda, will respond without being offended. I'm not saying asking in a chutzpah way, challenging <clears throat> and being like in any ways that are really not appropriate, because that just creates a very contentious and a very uh, uncomfortable, tense uh, situation. I'm talking about asking respectfully. Now, some will say they have no source, it's just what they feel. Now, if you feel that they're providing sources, so now you have something to to check with. You can always go to another Rav or to another Mashpia and say, what do you think about this? But you have to always be careful that you're not running from one to the other just to get what you want. If you're truly looking for the truth, and the only issue is you may have doubts, not because you're subjective. It shouldn't be because you're blinded. Now, you may not know that. You may say, I, don't, I think it's rubbing me wrong, but maybe I'm, a, I'm subjective. That's why asking a second person, and especially if you know the sources, and the second person says the same thing, then you have to say to yourself, okay, one second here. Now, to start running into another to another until you get what you want, obviously, is not, that's not, I would not call that honest and, and uh, filled with integrity. So the Rebbe would often say, you go to one doctor, and go to a second doctor, go to a third one, and do what the two out of the three say. The same thing is in Torah. Now, it's always important to make sure that you're not running again, because very many people will go to another, and I don't want anyone to use what I'm saying as an excuse to not listen. That's, but it's just in case you have that doubt, go to another. But if you're not listening to the second and to the third, then you pretty much know where the problem is. Then it's yourself. You may not accept that, but I need to state it, because if I hear that, then I say, okay, you know what? This person's not really interested in hearing uh, the, a truth. That's inconvenient. Not interested in going out of their comfort zone. Not so interesting with the they're interested in what the Torah has to say, and don't be uh, and don't minimize that possibility. All of us have been guilty of that, because that's how it is. Human nature is such you don't always want to hear something different than what you came to a conclusion to. You don't want to hear you're wrong. You don't want to hear that something has to be corrected, something has to be changed. It's much more convenient. I want someone just to say, "Yeah, you're doing it all good. It's all fine. Don't worry about it." Okay, so there is, there is recourse, basically. That's why we have the concept of going, and as I said, Mehechen Dantuni is one, sources, and number two, going to another, until you get yourself a clear 
consensus, but you have to follow the consensus. A Bezdin generally is a minimum of three people. That right away tells you that there's two out of three. There's going to be a majority. So you can have different perspectives. It's always a healthy thing to have that approach. As far as deciding when to go speak to your spouse or to your friend or to your rov or to your mashpia, there's no real black and white formula. I mean, I would say like this. If you're a married person, you have a spouse, obviously that's the first person you speak to about anything. Your partner's in life. And discuss whether it's financial matters, personal matters, intimacy matters, children, decisions of housing, education, where to live. I mean, these questions should be discussed together. That's always where you begin. If for whatever reason you can't come to terms or there's a fundamental disagreement and you can't find a way to get to clarity and you both are looking for the truth, then the next step would go, I would go step by step. I wouldn't run to a rav for a halacha. Unless it's a clear black and white shayla in halacha. I would talk to a mentor, to a mashpia, someone you both trust, and see what do you say. Doesn't have to be an authoritative, but it's an objective perspective. And sometimes we'll see something that spouses won't see, in case it's spouses. Could be friends, whatever the situation is. And I would work my way up. You wouldn't, you know, it's like almost going to a mediator before you go to a judge in a court of law. If that doesn't work, you may need something more stronger and more, more, uh, more authoritative. So I really would use seichel and simply trying to go step by step. It's always best. When both parties come to a resolution on their own or with the help of someone instead of it being an authoritative ruling. Because then that creates resentment and then you say maybe the person, the rabbi, was wrong. So it's generally best to get an Eitzah first and try to follow it, advice, before looking for a black and white ruling. Because it's much easier to internalize, to integrate, to live with without the, the negativity that comes often with someone ruling for or against someone. Okay. I would also refer you to episodes 27 and 275 for more on this topic of Mashpim and Rabbonim and so on. As far as I'll say one more thing about, if you know, addressing the issue of facts, if you feel that a Rav gave out a Psak, or a Mashpia for that matter gave some advice based on flawed facts or based on lack of information, so there's also recourse there. If you're directly involved, if you were the Baal, a Baal Din, meaning that you are obviously a Negei Bedover, you have to be careful because it could be that you're just not willing to accept the ruling and the Rabbonim did see the facts. And you just don't want to accept it. So you're saying they didn't see certain facts. I've seen that very often happen. People read facts different ways. And it could be those facts were exposed. If it's indeed... <coughs> You go to a third party and find out, listen, here are some facts I think they did not consider. And you don't, you're not trying to manipulate it. You're not trying to just get what you want. And those facts indeed become obvious that Arov did not, was not aware. So there are halachic ways. How do you bring it to Arov's attention? The entire Shulchan talks about Arov that finds out facts after the ruling, what to do. Contractual issues, marriage issues, marriage contract issues, other issues. So there's recourse, if indeed that's the case. But we're always looking to find the truth. We're not looking your truth or my truth. We're not trying to find what's convenient for us. That's when it's in that situation. Now, it may very well be, as I said, that the facts are out there already, and you just don't want to accept the ruling, which I already addressed, so I'm not going to repeat myself there. 
Um, as far as bad leaders, or I don't know the word bad leaders, but leaders that made mistakes, talk about Bnei Slavchad, you mentioned the Chet Eagle. they had good intentions, but mistakes were made. Look, we all can make mistakes. The question is whether you are looking at the one who's making a mistake, whether you are objective. Maybe you're also making a mistake. So I think in each case, we have to always look to find the truth. If you indeed see a leader or a rabbi say something that you think is a mistake, so you can go to war, which is absolutely not the Torah way. You can go to another Rav and in a very modest and humble way ask. Unfortunately, let's be honest, many of us get into battles, becomes personal. We feel we were, we were offended. We lost a dentator. So the Rav who, who passed, passed against us becomes someone like an enemy. And that's where the problems begin. It's emotional. It's personal. But if you're truly looking for the truth, you go to another Rav in a modest way. If you're not looking for a vendetta or vengeance or battle, there's always recourse. And if indeed you cannot get your way, you know, something, some things you have to accept. Farov Paskins and other Rabbanim are supporting that. That's, that's the case. Is there possibility that there's a conspiracy or there's corruption? There's always possibilities. We live in a world, the Torah is giving us the best possible way to resolve issues. And again, if you can't find it in one direction, go to another. But the main thing is not just run around to look for what you want. If we got the you, the I, out of it, we'd all be in a better place. Okay. Well, as usual... I've been talking about this as something I really want to get out of the system, to be honest. But since people are writing to me about the Democrat and Republicans, the election, and uh, this uh, transition period to the new president-elect, and some people are angry about it, some are not, and some, I mean, all this stuff. So I'm going to read one more letter that came to me, which was in contrast to last week, where essentially somebody was pushing and saying, why don't you brace Mr. Biden as you did Mr. Trump? And I addressed that last week. Here comes the other direction. How can we be complacent about the democratic anti-Torah values agenda? I want to say again, I am not taking a position. When I read a question like that, it does not mean I agree with it. I don't, but generally don't agree with blanket statements that all the Democrats and everything about Democrats is anti-Torah. And everything about Republicans is for Torah. No, that's not the case. There's one Torah. The Democrats and Republicans don't represent Torah. Torah represents Torah. You could say some of the platforms and some of the ideas and the values, one is they, that they embrace, that they champion, is aligned with Torah values, which is what we're looking for. But once you turn it political, then it becomes something that's not necessarily a Torah-Dika approach. But to give it equal time, since I wrote, read a letter that was so speak, more pro-Biden. Let's read one. I don't know if it's pro-Trump or it's anti-Biden, I'm not sure. Or I'll let you determine this yourself, but I'll read it in its entirety. It's not short, but not terribly long either, so hopefully it'll be helpful to some people. My understanding of your take on the elections is that you're only interested in discussing the elections as they affect our observance of mitzvahs. Well, let me correct that before I continue. Not just the, the performance of mitzvahs. Performance of, in general, upholding the, the values of Torah. It's not all about a particular mitzvah, whether to take a lulav or an eserig or to light Hanukkah licht. That's direct mitzvahs. It's, in general, the spirit of Torah. What the Rebbe would call the spirit of the Ten Commandments, the Sheva Mitzvahs Bnei Neach, Tzedek V'yeshet, 
In God we trust. E pluribusunum, a moment of silence. It's a lot more than just a mitzvah. I just wanted to make that very clear. But continue reading this writer, these writer's words. I would like to point out that the Democrats, especially, well, especially the vice president-elect, who is a major supporter of the Palestinians, is that they will restore all the funding paid to slay that President Trump defunded. How will this affect our brothers and sisters in Israel? They have already committed to restoring the Iran deal. How will this affect our brothers and sisters in Israel? President Trump accomplished what the Rebbe pressed for, that the U.S. should become energy independent so that the U.S. and its allies will no longer be under the thumb of evil countries. The Democrats will undo this chaz v'shalom. How easy will it be to learn and do mitzvahs under socialism? As a friend wrote, it matters very much who is president. The left is no longer patient and is totally out of the closet. <clears throat> Biden-Harris will open the Mexican borders to all of South America and the world by presidential executive order or even in violation of existing immigration laws bypassing Congress. Obama did this already to some degree. Lots of precedent. The courts won't stop them. Texas will be flipped blue in one year. You know, I have to stop here for a moment. The didactic tone that you're sharing here is, I'm reading it because I say I always like to leave everybody's voice and so on, but it's a very didactic tone as if you have all the facts down, as if this is absolute truths. I just really want to tell you that I don't accept that as a fact. There may be some elements of what you're saying. You know, it's what people said about Trump, exactly the same thing, that Trump is going to lock us all up and he's going to, he's an anti-Semite. And people said all kinds of things about him that were completely not factual. So I want to be really fair and balanced. It's not, I don't believe this is all factual. Is there a socialist agenda by some? Perhaps yes. Will they be able to implement it? Who knows? Uh, do we have to still stand up for what we believe? Absolutely. And now I'll read on. Amnesty by executive order, millions of new voters who culturally prefer socialist politics. Take care of me. Over personal freedom, including free speech, free speech religion, religious freedoms. All Democrat voters. It doesn't change over generations because the left controls all levels of education, as well as popular culture and the flow of information. Okay, well, it goes on, and I'm not going to read it all, I realize, about doc- democracy being tyranny of the majority. The founding fathers trying to stop this, but the left is relentless. Basically, it's a very strong argument that the left has a very strong base and agenda that's going to undermine everything America stands for. It says, can't happen? Don't be foolish or naive. California, Arizona, and others used to be solid Republican. Are the grandchildren moving forward toward free cap- market capitalism? Um, negatory. Well, the fact of the matter, with all due respect to the writer here, People live in California that I personally know, including family members, and they're not necessarily living in a, a more socialist country than New York or other p- parts of the country. So are there shifts in certain areas? Absolutely. Is there a godlessness? Yes. But as soon as it becomes this extreme, to me, this is exactly the problem. Just as the extreme pro-Trumpers, it's extreme pro, just as the, the extreme pro-Bidenists or anti-Trump that have the same dogmatic and didactic tone that just frankly, for intelligent people, doesn't work. Because it's not, we don't see it as factual. 
And I'm not suggesting I have a monopoly on the facts, but I definitely can recognize when there's a very strong position. And I respect you as a person, but maybe you should open your mind and think, you know, things are not so black and white. To just paint, uh, paint broad, broad strokes of dismissing entire people. Democratic Party, there's no one among the Democrats that is a decent human being. I don't accept that. Are they dominant? Well, listen, it's like all politics. Politics is not clean. And among the Republicans, they're all tzaddikim. They're all righteous. That's, that's... Now, I understand that it's been painted that way. There's very black and white, the Republican platform, the Democratic platform. And yes, there are many things about the Republican platform that I think are more aligned with what God wants. I'm not denying that. But I just think it should, has to be, the tone has to be far more encompassing and with qualifications. And he goes on with a whole list of everything that can go wrong under the new democratic regime, meaning Biden and Harris. Lists about, about literally a whole list, which I'm not going to read right now because it's just too much. But I think I gave the gist. Now, there are many people, there are millions of people in the country that feel this way. Many voted for Trump. I don't feel this extreme. I do feel that, obviously, there are concerns. As soon as you take God out of the picture, as soon as you wander away from the values and the fundamental principles and foundations of this country, it creates trouble. But I believe in the country. There's a country that has diversity. I say I believe. I don't mean I believe in it with a complete faith. There are certain basic principles that we've ridden through civil wars, different presidents that had very strong positions that we don't agree with, and we've survived them. The country has a solid fabric, a solid foundation. Is it being undermined by some, and some want to undermine it all? Absolutely. But look, even with this election, was this election a landslide toward one position or another? Yes, there was a winner and a loser, but you see that the country is, generally speaking, center-right. And everyone acknowledges that. Do some want to move it? Of course they want to move it. But it maintains that. That tells you something. You look at the states. There are many red states and there are blue states. So I think if we get beyond the rhetoric and the emotions and step back and think, what's the bigger picture? Where is this headed? I think that people's heartbeats will become a little slower and not that uh, dramatic and... And uh, what should I say? Uh, they're so so um, volatile and extreme. And that still doesn't mean we shouldn't fight for the values that we believe in. I'm not dismissing that. This is not a dismissal of this letter. It's taking it. I did read part of it, most of it, just taking it all into context and finding that middle ground as best as possible that we can find. At the end of the day, you have to figure out your life and your children's life and your family's life. Does the government have much to say there? I've asked many people in the last four years, the people that hate Trump, I said, did it affect your personal life? Or just affected your, uh, your nerves and your emotions and your entertainment or lack of entertainment on, on the media? And the same thing I say to the others. Obama was with us for eight years. You could send your children to any school you like. You can educate them in the highest and most spiritual values possible. No one's taking that away from you. So we have to realize that, yes, Washington has an impact, has an impact on Israel and so on, but Israel generally, as the Rebbe always said, is supported by America. Even those that didn't like Israel had to support it because that's part of the 
system. Can it get worse? Can you create a doomsday, a doomsday scenario of anti-Semitism and becoming like, uh, like people paint pictures of Germany in, the, in Europe in the early part of the 20th century or golden Spain? I, for one, don't see that happening. I don't see it in the Rebbe's words. And obviously, we have to work toward making things better all the time. But to have a panic, I'm not seeing a panic. Yes, there's a pandemic. We have much to deal with and challenges to deal with. But we will get through it. And I think we need to be sober. We have a tater to look to and try to get our political leaders and all our leaders to be accountable to these highest standards. That's the best thing we can do. And if you have influence, by all means, use it in any given way. Those of us that have less influence on Washington or on the political stage, then we have to do it through our families and our communities. And yes, through our ballots as well as we vote for different uh, candidates. Okay. Now, now that I got that out of the way, let me just do a little follow-up here. And then we shall do the chassidus question, and then we shall do the essays. Okay. So as a follow-up, two weeks ago, in episode 333, or three weeks ago, I spoke about marrying cousins. Spoke about the Rabbeim in general, what the Torah position on marrying a cousin. Spoke about the Rabbeim. So I, at the time I'd said that I don't know if any Rabbeim married a first cousin. They married cousins. So and I also qualified that I didn't look it up and I didn't, uh, I didn't state it in any definitive way. So thank you for some who've helped clear it up. One person writes... Read the episode three re, regarding your episode three thirty the episode three thirty three that Tzemach Sadik himself married his first cousin. Okay. Why? Another person wrote, Rabbi Jacobson, I'm listening to your program and you said that the Rabbeim didn't marry first cousins. Well, I just qualified what I actually said. I said I didn't recall if they did or didn't, and if someone can help clarify, so great. In fact, the Tzemach Sadik, the Rebbe Marash, in his Zivuk Sheni, his second marriage. His first Rebbeson was his niece, which only intensifies the question you were asked as, the health, as, as, as to the health risk, whether the health risk is more than four times greater than that of first cousins. Oh, that a niece is more than four times, okay. And the Rebbe all married first cousins. Well, the Rebbe didn't marry a first cousin. First cousin means literally that the, father and mother, the, fa- the parents of both of the individuals are brothers or sisters. The Rebbe married a cousin from the Tzemach Tzedek. The Rebbe was several generations from the Tzemach Tzedek, as was the Rebbe Tzachayim Mushkin. Okay, and the Friedrich Rebbe married a second cousin. The health risks to children of cousins whose grandparents aren't closely related are pretty low, but compound exponentially over the generations, as was famously the case with the Habsburgs, and then the risk goes up. Okay, incidentally... Research shows that before the advent of modern transportation, the average couple were fourth cousins, as people tended to stay in the vicinity of their ancestral homes. Good. Among Jews, the average relations were much, was much closer. Although I haven't seen any research quantifying it over different periods, in fact, all Ashkenazi Jews are quite, quite closely related, which is why we have such a high prevalence of genetic illnesses. Okay. So thank you for that, and it complements what I spoke about then. There's no reason to add anything. Let's move to the next. Was Yaakov ready for the Gula? So again, a few episodes back, 
I spoke about what Chassidus, the Rebbe cites from Chassidus, from Terer and Teres Chaim, by Yishlach, Pasha by Yishlach, where the Yaakov, that Yaakov initially thought that, Yaakov, that Esau was ready for the goal, and then he saw he wasn't, so then he obviously adjusted. Dear Rabbi Jacobs, in the last week's episode, you mentioned how Yaakov Avinu wasn't ready for Mashiach, which is why he didn't accept the invitation to live near Esau. The Rebbe in Pashas Vayishlach says that on the contrary, Yaakov was ready for Mashiach. He already finished the Birudim, but Esau wasn't ready for Mashiach. How do we reconcile both? Thank you for all the hard work you put into these episodes. A great fan of yours. Well, it's very simple. When Yaakov came back from Lovon, what it says, he thought maybe Esau was ready for the ghoul. That's one way it says in Maimer and Tereir. In Tereir's Chaim it says Yaakov Choshev, Yaakov actually thought that Yesov was ready, not that he just thought maybe he was ready. He was ready. But then, when he sent the 400 people, the 400 men, I'm sorry, when he sent his shluchim, his malochim, and he saw that Esau was marching with 400 men, he realized he was not ready. Once he realized he wasn't ready, he realized he can't live side by side with Esau. There would still be time that was necessary. And that's how you reconcile it. Depends what he first thought until he realized it wasn't the case. And now the work continues until we finish it and when Yaakov and Esau will live again in peace. Or live for the first time in peace, you can say. Full peace. Okay, another follow-up. Making Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael. In your previous classes, you spoke of whether we should pick up and make Aliyah. You referred to Eretz Yisrael as a state of mind. Does that mean the whole world as we know it will be Eretz Yisrael when Mashiach comes? Or will we need to go there physically soon after Mashiach comes? What will be of the shlichus, of shlichus in time of Mashiach? Okay, good questions. Basically, simply put is this. Eretz Yisrael is a piyalocha, a certain place in the world, a geography with its boundaries, the mitzvahs of Trumas and Mises, and other laws that are applicable only in Eretz Yisrael. Shemitah and so on. When the Tzemach Tzedek was asked by someone who wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael, the Tzemach Tzedek told, Machdo Eretz Yisrael. That clearly meant halacha spiritually, not halachically. It was not Golis to suggest that whether in Russia or in America you can make Israel, and here we have Mechayev and Shemitah and Truma and Mises and so on, that's not correct. Spiritually, since Eretz Yisrael is basically Eretz HaShe'en HaShem HaLekechavah, it's the spiritual hub of the world, Shara Shemayim, the gate, an interface between the physical world and higher reality. So Tzamech Tzedek was saying, but Ruchnis make dort, mach dort Yisrael. Additionally, it says when Mashiach comes, Asid Eretz Yisrael shetispashet b'chol arotzes. Eretz Yisrael will spread to all, the, to all the nations. And yet we have the thing of Kibbutz, kibbutz Nitzchei Yisrael will all be gathered back to Israel. That does not mean we'll stay where we are and that's Kibbutz Nitzchei Kibbutz Nitzchei Yisrael means that all those that are pushed off have been, have been wandering in Golis come back to Eretz Yisrael. But yet, Eretz Yisrael, the Kedush of Eretz Yisrael, will then permeate, and the whole world will become like Eretz Yisrael today. And then, Asid Yerushalayim, Shetuspashet L'Eretz Yisrael, the Kedush of Yerushalayim, which is higher than the holiness of Eretz Yisrael, that will spread to Eretz Yisrael. And there's Eser Kedush, there are ten levels of holiness in Israel. Basically, everything will elevate to the next level. And yet, at the same time, the Jewish people will return to Israel. Do we know exactly how the stages will be when every Jew will return? Before, the Rebbe speaks often about, there are already now, Ken Yirbu, over 7 million Jews there. So, it's been growing. You see the, the, the 
And of course, when Mashiach comes, it'll be the Kibbutz Nitzchi Yisrael for everyone. So I hope that answers some of the questions. Okay. So now, let us go to this question, and then, so a big snow fell on the East Coast, in New York and other places. So a person asked a question in Apir Chsidis. The question is, what is the spiritual significance of snow? So how would you know? I actually wrote something years ago based on a classes I gave when there were big snowstorms here in New York in the years, uh, was it uh, 86 and 87, I believe? Um, 92, I don't remember all the years, but at Kalpam there were some big snows. So I did research, and actually if you go to MeaningfulLife.com and just write the spiritual significance of snow, you'll find a lot of material there. Briefly put, so Shelek is a very interesting uh, phenomenon. Apialocha, the question is, is Shelek like offer, like uh, dust, or is it like water, like frozen water? And there are different opinions. Can you use Shelek, for example, snow in a mikveh? which needs water. Can you use shelek for kisei hadam? When you shecht a chicken and you need to cover the chicken with, with earth or dust, can you use snow as that dust? So there's different opinions. Apir said that shelek is talked before about uh, interfaces. Shelek is like an interface. It's not quite water. It's a different madrega, shelek, snow. And it uh, talks about uh, that... Uh, uh, different elements of snow reflect a very high level in Atika Kadisha, in Atik, based on the Posig in Daniel that says, Atik Yemen, Yosef al Kursayo, the one of ancient years, sits on the throne, on his seat, on Kursayo's Kisei. The Reishe, it says, the Reishe Ketlag Chiver, his head is Tlag is Sheleg is white like snow, meaning his hair is white like snow on his head. V'luvusher, um, one second, did I say, what did I say? Reishe, I'm sorry, Reishe ke'omer nako. His head is white like um, semer, like wool. V'luvusher ketlag chiver. And his garments are white like snow. So Chesidus explains, Kabbalah Chesidus explains, we're talking about Atik in the highest levels of Keser. So Shelig is a hamshacha from those higher levels that Luvushel Ketlak Chiva, white as snow. The whiteness, Levin Elyon, represents a very high level that's higher than colors and structure and definition. So briefly, snow is a hamshacha from a very high level. And it comes down, therefore it doesn't come down like water or rain. It's not like ice, which is hardened and in many ways represents something that's not necessarily always Kedusha because it's already hardened. And snow is the Hamshacha from Atik, basically. In the year Tofrei Samach Dalad, which is the equivalent of the year uh, 18... Uh, eight, uh, Samach Dalad, I'm sorry, 1904. There was a big snow in Lubavitch. It snowed a lot in Lubavitch. And the Rebbe Rashab wrote a Rashima called Shelig. It's printed in the back of, say, from Mamorim Tofrei Samach Dalad. That's a very Kabbalistic and deeper concept, but basically snow is a reminder... Like listening and white snow that brings such purity from a higher place is a reminder of Amshacha from Atik in this world. So it's actually like Simon Tev in that sense. There's more to be said on it, but that should suffice for now. So at times we need a reminder. So maybe interesting, in the middle of this whole COVID, a snow fell that reminded us of a higher, the higher invisible hand of Atik Yemen, of the divine. 
Okay. With that, we move now to this year's sixth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest. So now we move to the eighth place winners, the eighth, number eight. And there are four winners. One essay in English titled Unconditional Trust, Adel Cohen, age 25, Tzivis Hashem, writer and editor, Brooklyn, New York. So this talks about dealing with the challenges in life, this essay, and how Chassidus helps us deal with stress and so on. Very well done essay. I recommend it. Go to meaningfullife.com. I'm sorry, chassidusapply.com and you can read this essay. The, he, the, the essay... The, the essay in Hebrew, the eighth place essay for men, is called Hachsidus Lemaisa, Applied Chsidis, Yenison Ziv, Bnei Brach Israel. And here he takes some fundamental principles of Chsidis, of how to look at life in different ways and allow us to become healthier and greater people. Again, a very comprehensive essay. Check it out. The, the eighth place essay in Hebrew for women is called. Rikshut Hashama, feelings of guilt. When are they healthy and when are they not healthy? Basically taking responsibility for your life. Or is it harmful self-flagellation? This is Debbie Minzberg, B'nai Brach, Israel in Hebrew. And the title speaks for itself, dealing with guilt, healthy form of dealing with and when it's not healthy, healthy shame versus unhealthy shame. And finally, the eighth place creative is a poem, poetry, titled A Tale of Golden Dust, based on Tanya, based on Sefer Mamorim Tavshin Beis, based on other Hasidic sources, Rivka Goldenberg, age 19, student based Hanat Tzvah Seminary, from Lawrenceville, New Jersey, wrote a beautiful poem about distinguishing between the gold and the dirt and how we bring out the best, even from situations that may be very dark or dirty. Excellent essay as well. Well, it's not an essay, an excellent poem, and beautifully to read, very touching, to see how people use their creativity to bring chassidus to life. And with that, my friends, we conclude this episode 336 of My Life Chassidus Applied. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Always a pleasure, always an honor. It should be a very illuminating, a very powerful Chedesh Tevis where we transform the cold and the darkness of this month into beautiful light and warmth, and transform Asarabatevis from Yehovchi Yomamel, the Sassan, the Simcha, the transforming it into the Geula Hamitis Vashlema. Everyone be well and be blessed. Thank you so much. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chasidis Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chasidisapply.com slash donate.